Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 25th, 2017. I first became interested in the League of the South late last year, when a good friend had brought the organization to my attention, and even admonished me to become familiar with it. And then I had noticed that some of the people whom I was acquainted with on social media were among its members. So we first met a few of the people from the Florida chapter of the League of the South at a small affair they held last December. But when I decided to go to New Orleans for the demonstrations in defense of the Confederate monuments at Lee Circle back in early May of this year, I knew that it was also an opportunity to get better get to know the membership and what they stood for. This is no run-of-the-mill civic organization or Southern heritage group that meets up and plays toy soldiers while lamenting the loss of an unfortunate war. Rather, to them, the war has not been lost at all, and it is still being fought even if the actual shooting has been suspended. From my observation, the League stands for resistance to the tyrannical American empire, and they continue to encourage political succession from an unholy union, as well as the perpetuation of white southern culture and the rights of the southern people and society to its own self-determination. But most importantly from our perspective at Christogenia, the men and women we have met from the League of the South understand the necessary connections between race and nation, kindred and community, and blood and soil that are the only solid foundations for any healthy Christian society, and they are determined to take real-world positions in defense of these principles, expressing their profession without regard for their enemies. This I find admirable, and I would exhort all Christians everywhere to support such an endeavor. We were pleased to have witnessed this determination first-hand in New Orleans back in May, and we were even more honored to have been introduced to the President of the League of the South, Dr. Michael Hill, who has continued to impress us as an ideal example of the traditional Southern gentleman. If I am not mistaken, Michael Hill was the principal founder of the League in the early 1990s. He has a doctoral degree in history from the University of Alabama, and he had a long career in the field as a university professor. Among other things, he has written books on Celtic warfare. His activities with the League of the South demand his qualifications as both a strategist and a scholar. Hello, Michael, and... Welcome to Christiania. Hello, Pastor. I am uh, honored to be on your program. I uh, certainly followed you for some time, and uh, it was my pleasure to finally meet you in person in New Orleans and uh, see you uh, since then uh, in Lake City, Florida, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again. But thank you so much for having me on your program tonight, or today, rather. Well, the pleasure is ours. It, it's a wonderful thing to um, 
to find like-minded individuals who share our convictions and not necessarily the labels, right, which really don't mean much to us at all. It, it's the conviction that matters. Absolutely, sir, the conviction that matters. The, the obvious question to me is why you would devote your life to the concept of the League of the South and political succession in a world that is full of apathy and acceptance of the diversity agenda? Well, because it's the right thing to do. Uh, my father and grandfathers taught me from a very early age the importance of family, and they did it through talking about my ancestors or our common ancestors. Uh, not only our uh, immediate uh, line, our immediate lineal family, but people uh, that fell into my my nation, if you will, my my genetic uh, uh, line, my gene pool. Uh, they they taught me who we were from from an early age, and they taught me to be proud that you know uh, God Himself had created us who we were and put us in this beautiful land we call the South, and they just instilled in me a love of the South, of my land, of my family, my blood kin. And they also taught me about the heroic efforts that my people and uh, uh, my, my family in particular uh, had engaged in, uh, particularly in the war between the states or the war for southern independence. And I, I like to tell people, a Pastor, that I was already a southern nationalist by the time I was six or seven years old. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's ebbed and flowed since then, but I really started to get it back uh, after I went through my teen years and uh, got distracted by some things. But uh, although those were not complete, well, that was not a complete waste of time. The good Lord was, you know, putting me through some changes. But by the time I got in my mid-20s, all of this came back to me not as a boy, but as a man. And I began to to think and study and reflect on all these things. And by the time I got into my early 40s, a period of, you know, 15, 16, 17 years, I was ready to do what I'm doing now and have been doing for the, almost the last quarter of a century. And uh, I look at it as my duty. I don't look at it as a matter of success or failure, although I do want to succeed, and I want to see this movement succeed for the benefit of all the people in it, and all of the future generations of people that will be represented by it. But, you know, my father told me, he said, son, there are some things you fight for, you don't ask about winning or losing, you just simply go and fight for them and do your duty, and you let God worry about the consequences of it all. And that's kind of what I've done with this, Pastor. I've just said, look, this is my duty. I am compelled to do it by something bigger than myself. And I'm simply going to do it as long as uh, the Lord himself gives me the strength and the wherewithal to do this. It is what I shall do with my life. And, and that leads me to rearrange my questions a little bit. It, it's fir first, let me say, I think we've all had occasion, and, and myself included, in, in my um, near memory and direct experience, where I've wandered away from the some of the principles I learned as a as a young man or as a child, 
and and only came back to them later in life, the world today seems to want us to pull us away permanently in, into this um, social Babylon and, and political Babylon that we've all come to realize or recognize now. At, at least my listeners and, and evidently the greater part of your membership has certainly realized that. Yes, I think they have. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of us, uh, because of the culture that we have grown up in, and I think you and I are pretty much close to the same age, and, uh, you know, it pulls you away from uh, from the truth, as it were. I mean, that's the big thing we're talking about here is the truth. Uh, and it, it, it takes you down all these false paths. And I went down some of those, too. But thank goodness I, I was uh, grounded well enough by, by my my mother's mother and father and my grandparents and and all um, to even though I strayed I, I didn't stray completely and there was something there that kept pulling me back something that uh, that simply wouldn't let go and I know that it was it was God Himself who who was doing that because you know we don't we don't do these things on our own uh, but I thank Him for it and I thank Him for giving me the men and women in my life. Uh, and, and those that came before them that shaped the ones that shaped me. Uh, and I, I thank him every day for doing that and putting me in the situation he has and taking me away from the world and putting me back on uh, his path, the path of truth. Well, well, just to make my own listeners comfortable, the, the League of the South, I'm very impressed with the character of all of the members that I've met. Yet I understand that it's an organization with political aspirations. A, a lot of people would ask me why I'm, because I'm always preaching that there's no political solution, why I might be involved with a group with political aspirations. But I would say that these aren't normal political aspirations because they're aspirations for um, the dissolution of the political landscape and and the empire as we know it right so to me that's a positive political aspiration yes absolutely we we realize that politics is merely one area of human activity that god has has ordained for his people to be involved in we see no ultimate solution in politics and that's why we we are not really a political organization although that is one facet of our activity, but uh, our our politics is not an end in itself. Um, we don't think that that the be all and end all of getting to where we want to be is electing the right people to office. You're right. We are dealing uh, a, we are dealing here with a corrupt political system, and sometimes you have to deal in politics in order to destroy such a system and to put something that is godly in its place uh, and of course God does ordain different types of government and that's what we're interested in is instituting of course with his blessing uh, a sort of government that is laid out uh, in his holy holy word uh, and having it be based on that so you know, normal, secular, everyday politics has no interest to us at all, except as a tool to use temporarily to get where we want to go. Well, well right, and and that's really what I'm driving at is the um, the civic involvement 
and the successionist desire, what which is the that the successionist objective, I should say, which may seem political in nature, but you want successionism and, and you want to succeed from this union in order to maintain your culture and, and the character of your, your nation. And, and that's a good reason to have such a political objective. Yes, that, that's right. I mean, we live in, uh, you, you mentioned the term twice so far, Babylon, we we live in a, a modern day version uh, of that here, and I, I don't think that uh, our Creator uh, wants us to live uh, and be be content living under such uh, a rule. And secession uh, is is merely a tool, and the the real ultimate goal uh, obviously is to get out from under this godless empire, as as we call it and to be able to rule ourselves as a people of God. I mean, we, we want, what, what, I, what I pray for every day, Pastor, is that our people will turn their face again to, to their God, to our Creator, and that He will forgive us and be our God and, and deign uh, to let us be his, to be his people again. I mean, we are His people, but we've certainly sinned and strayed and become stiff-necked and proud and uh, have disobeyed. Uh, we need to get down on our knees and beg forgiveness and be His people once again in in uh, in fact and in deed. Um, and I, then I think He'll bless us. Uh, but I, I think if we were merely content to sit here in this modern-day Babylon and do nothing about it, particularly for our future generations, for our children and grandchildren. I don't see how we could expect to be blessed. And that's um, that's what's impressed me most about your organization. I'm an identity Christian, and, and I'm certain that at least 99% of my listeners are, and, and I would like to make it clear that the League of the South is not a religious organization that we should never expect it to bear any such denominational title or religionist title. However, in its essence, your philosophies are, are very amenable to us. And, and I would advise your organization to any identity Christians in the South or anywhere you might accept them, and we'll speak about that, I hope, and and that's because it seems to be an ideal fit for those of us who would want to become involved in civic affairs. Well, I think you're absolutely correct. I think they would be very comfortable with our position. Now, you're right. Uh, you know, we are not uh, a religious organization per se. You know, an ecclesiastical organization in the in the sense that most people understand it today. And I just tell people, you know, we're not the church. So we don't have any kind of, uh, uh, we, we don't say that you have to be this or you have to believe this creed or whatever. But most of our people are are very, what, what we call traditionalist Christians. Uh, they don't buy into this modern claptrap that's called Christianity today. Uh, but yes, I, I think people uh, uh, the CI uh, belief would be right at home in our organization for this reason. You know, we understand the importance of blood and soil, kith and kin. Uh, we understand what the biblical definition of a nation is. Uh, 
and that is a a bloodline of people. And we understand that uh, God has created us uh, in his image, and we believe that that's a blessing that we need to guard and to proclaim, and not to boast about it, obviously, because we didn't have anything to do with our own creation, but to accept it is a great blessing. And, you know, we're a pro-white organization. Uh, uh, goodness knows all these other uh, races and ethnic groups and uh, all have their own groups that, that are interest groups that push for their uh, way of thinking. And uh, we do this for white people in the South and, and our allies elsewhere. We're not exclusively Southern, although we tell other people that, you know, if you're uh, uh, straight, white, Gentile, uh, as as the you know to to use the the term that most would understand uh, non Jew non Muslim obviously uh, then you can become a member of the league whether you're a Southerner or not as long as you are are a supporter of a free and independent South so uh, you know we 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 have restrictions on who can be a member and we realize the blessings that God has given us as white men and women. So I think I think uh, your listeners will be very comfortable with us. And and that was my next question, but I'll I'll, I'll repeat it anyway because of some of the background. But putting what may be of the greatest interest to my listeners right up front, because there's a lot of quote unquote pro white groups that accept Jews as just a, another another flavor of white people. But it certainly seems that the League of the South is not afraid to tackle the Jewish question. And I was very much encouraged by that. When at the Florida State Conference that I had attended, that you had mentioned earlier, I, I saw both the messages of, not, of, well, I saw all of the messages of yourself and League Director Mark Tomey, who actually I believe is a Catholic, and, and also Matthew Heimbach in that regard, that they all had, had, um, had the, the Jewish question thoroughly understood and and I thought they handled it brilliantly all three of all three of you I should say and well, thank you I would like to understand if this was the league understanding from its inception I believe we spoke about this and and if not how difficult was it for you to change the league membership to accept your your position on this issue this is a difficult issue especially for Christians that's right. That's that's a very good question. Uh, let, let me preface it by saying that now you don't get to be a league leader unless you, you're right on the Jewish question. We simply do not have any leaders in the league that I know of, at least on the national and, and the state level, that are not solid on the JQ, as we call it, for short. But yes, uh, it, it's it's been a very difficult breakthrough, as it were, uh, because we started the league in 1994, and you know I was a fairly young man at the time, and I didn't—I had no playbook uh, about how to run an organization like this. I—I I learned by making mistakes, and to be quite honest about it, when we first started, uh, you know we—we did—we had a limited pool of people from which to draw. Um, and a lot of that was uh, your traditional, what we call heritage organizations in the South. And most of those are made up of 
of men who would rather dress up and play soldier uh, on the weekends than really get their hands dirty with a real serious Southern Nationalist movement. So we didn't quite have the raw material to do what we're doing now. We've had to build that material up and, uh, as, I call, as I call it sometimes, uh, uh, use the principle of addition by subtraction, that is, get rid of the dead wood, even though it, it reduced our numbers, it strengthened what was left. But to be quite honest about it, now, uh, you know, I, I had to fight against our board of directors for about the first eight or nine years uh, to, to tackle this question. See, I already, I already knew where I stood because my father, and particularly my father-in-law, had really taught me well on the Jewish question. Uh, didn't learn much about it in church because I grew up a Methodist. Thank goodness I didn't learn anything I had to unlearn. But uh, my father-in-law, God rest his soul, he, he was a great man, and he taught me a whole lot of good stuff about the JQ. And so I brought that with me into the league, but I realized, as you pointed out, it's going to be a hard sell. And I had to fight my board increasingly over eight or nine years to start dealing with this question and even with the Negro question, seriously. And finally, I just said, look, I'm, I'm just going to roll the dice and we're going to see what happens. And I did, and we lost some people uh, on the board and we lost some members. But as I said, we, we started this process of addition by subtraction, and we've lost a lot of people. Uh, to be quite honest, Pastor, we had 28 people, 28 people in that room when the league was born in June of 1994 because of, of death and desertion, I might, I might call it. You know how many of those 28 are left? Two. Wow. Me and, me and my uh, friend, attorney Sam Dixon. Uh, and you know what Sam told me? He, said, he called me aside. He said, Michael, he said one of these days uh, you're going to find success with this group. If you keep on, he said, but you will not do it with the people that you've got in this room right now. And you know he was absolutely right about that. I had to fight this battle for almost a decade, Pastor, until I just said, you know, come hell or high water, we're, we're going this direction, and we have, and over the past 15 years or so, uh, we've been slowly turning in that direction, and over the past five, six, seven years, we've turned hard in that direction, and I am so, so thankful that, that God himself has led us in this direction because it is the direction of truth. It's a hard path, but it's the direction of truth, and I would not be on any other path. Well, it's my own experience that we are more successful when we shoot for Gideon's 300 rather than for the big tent. And, and that, that is commendable. Amen. Yeah, it it it, it was kind of uh, it was kind of scary because, you know, one of the things that that a big membership does is uh, put you know dues in, in into the coffers uh, of the organization, and we have to have money to run. But you know, since we turned onto the, I think the narrow hard path of the truth. Uh, God Himself has has provided 
from some unusual quarters the wherewithal that we need to run this organization. And I, you know, I'm so thankful for that, and I certainly don't attribute it to anything I've done. I attribute it to his grace, mercy, and goodness, and and I, I certainly pray that he continues that. And I've seen... I just saw a post in 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 this vein. I I have to go to the bottom of my notes for this. On, on a recent League of the South bulletin announced that the league has lost some weak sisters lately because of our stand in favor of the South as a white man's land, participation in the Nationalist Front, and our continuing expose of the Jew as an ancient and implacable enemy of our people and civilization. Now, now the bulletin was longer than that, and it was very well written. And you may, of course, elaborate, but it may reflect a strengthening of your ideology over the years, which perhaps some of your members haven't followed along with. And, and that, that's, um, that's inevitable. And, and organization well, has yes. to grow. Yes, it, it, and, and the problem is, of course, is that the the Zionist influence uh, in America, what I, I hesitate to call it Christianity because it really isn't, but what passes for Christianity, particularly among the evangelical crowd, has has uh, sort of cemented in their in their minds this idea of the Jew as the chosen people of God, and they look at us. And they quote, you know, the, those, you know, if you don't bless Israel, you won't be blessed, and you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, so, we we still have a remnant, albeit I'm glad to say, a a, uh, a rapidly diminishing element remnant uh, that are in the league that uh, still hold to that, but they're um, they're getting out like uh, we're running them out like rats. Now, and I'm, I'm very happy with that because, as I said before, you don't get to be a league leader today unless you're solid on the Jewish question. Well, maybe one day I could help change some of their minds. That I man. hope you can, sir. I'm going to... Um, as a, I read a novel in my late teens called Mandingo by Kyle Onstad, and I hated it, but I do not remember why I read that book. I'm kind of glad I read it now, I mean later in life. It it promoted race mixing at every turn. In essence, leading one to believe that Southern racists were virtual hypocrites. I thought the book was garbage. And now in hindsight, to me, the promotion of such a book is clearly part of the Jewish propaganda war against the South that's been conducted in the media for nearly 200 years. How great is the divide between that propaganda and historical reality? Well, I think that there, <clears throat> I think that there is a gap, uh, a pretty large gap between what the Jew would like to see and what the reality is. Now, I, I, pre- I, I, I will uh, sort of qualify that by saying that there is a lot more race mixing in the South today than there was back when I was a boy in the 1950s or a young you know, teenager uh, and a young man in the 60s and 70s. You did not see very much of it back then. You see more of it today, but I don't see nearly as much of it 
as some people seem to think there is out there. So I, I think the Jew pushes it, yes, and I think he pushes it hard and relentlessly, but I don't think that a large percentage of our people have fallen for that devil's trick. Uh, some, yes, but uh, thank goodness. And, and if I may be allowed to say so, most of the fem- white females you see uh, with Negro bucks, uh, I don't think a, uh, a normal white man would care anything about anyway. Uh, it's what we uh, up my neck of the woods here call white trash. And there's an old saying among our people, once you go black, we don't want you back. So, you know, there are going to be some people like that that go off the reservation, as it were, and, uh, you know, uh, miscegenate. Uh, but I don't think that it's as big a problem as the Jew would like for it to be. So, uh, yeah, I, I haven't read the book. I know they made a terrible movie out of it. I, I think it was part of the um, the and 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 that's going to lead to my next question. I think it was part of the new reconstruction program. And and yes. the first time I saw. Government-enforced diversity described as a form of continued reconstruction. I saw it in a book titled The Black Death by Andrew Grayson. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was written, I think, by somebody in South Carolina. But Mm -hmm. now I see that concept mentioned frequently among League members. Perhaps the relationship is obvious to a Southerner, but it still begs me to ask about the development of your organization's philosophy concerning the the Negro question? Well, most of us Southerners, uh, particularly of a certain age, I'd I'd say those of us born in the 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe even into the 70s, certainly through the 60s, um, saw the the Negro problem pretty clearly. or at least our parents and grandparents did and were able to to give us uh, a, a good a good education on it. But I, I can remember seeing it firsthand when I was a boy and a young man. And, and you know, I, I knew, A, that there was a tremendous difference between the races, and, B, because of that, there would never be any equality uh, between the two, and the two could not live together on that false uh, basis or premise, um, and also I was I was always taught uh, that you know we didn't mix with these people, we didn't mix with them socially, uh, we certainly didn't mix with them uh, genetically, and that the only uh, the only relations we had with them were sort of economic relations, if you will, and and those were limited as well. But uh, the Negro question uh, is obvious to most Southerners because we've lived in close proximity to it. We've seen it, whereas a lot of people outside the South in areas where the Negro population is is uh, is not very high, uh, they simply do not know what the South has had to put up with for most of our history. So we've been very much aware of that, and we became aware in, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, particularly our parents uh, and grandparents at that time, uh, about the coalition of the Jew and Negro interest, uh, and that that's been uh, directed against the white man now for more than half a century, 
And I think a lot of Southerners realize that. They just have been so browbeaten with political correctness that, that, that they simply try to put it out of their minds. And they certainly won't tackle the question, but I think they know it. And I think most Southerners realize that the idea of Negro equality with whites is, is a charade, a farce. But to get them to talk about it publicly is one thing, but privately they will. And I've done that with a lot of people who, who said, you know, I really like where the league stands on these questions, but I could never say anything publicly like that because, A, I would lose my job, B, I would lose customers if they own their own business, or I might get kicked out of the country club or whatever. So, they, you know, they know there's a price to pay for telling the truth. But uh, thank goodness uh, the the good Lord has given those in the league the uh, ability and the, and the courage to know the truth and to tell it. Well, I learned about the Negro problem at six and seven years old from the other end. Being a child in New Jersey and watching... Jersey City and Newark be virtually destroyed by the massive number of Negroes that were moved up from the South in the 1950s mm-hmm. and 60s. And and yep. I did watch Jersey City go from heaven to hell in, in eight years, maybe, in the 1960s. And that was my yeah. childhood. And, and I, I, I knew that there was a Negro... <laughs> a Negro problem at age six. Yeah. See, I didn't know that, Pastor, uh, because I lived, I grew up in a part of the South, the Upland South, uh, in northwest Alabama, where the Negro population was very, very slight. Because, you know, this was not plantation, the plantation South. This was the uh, hillbilly South, the poor, poor man's red dirt South, you know, we didn't have uh, very many Negroes at all, so I really didn't have anything, any experience with them until I got off to college and and moved south uh, into central Alabama, where well, they were about 25% of the population down there, whereas up in my part of Alabama, they were about <laughs> probably 1%, if that. Uh, so I had an uh, education pretty quickly as a, as a young man. And uh, I learned a lot. Uh, learned a lot I didn't learn as a child, but it was a little bit past six, as in your case. Well, my life's always been torn between north and south. I was actually born in Virginia to um, transplanted parents, transplanted Yankee parents. And I fell in love with, Vir- in, with Virginia as a teenager. When I visited the Shenandoah Valley, I worked there in, for several years in the 1990s and lived there again when I met a wife from Bristol, Tennessee, and, and lived there recently for two years in southwest Virginia. And, it's and, a beautiful um, place. Oh, I love it. It would be my um, first choice of a place to live if I could make my own choice. We're here in the Florida Panhandle is nice, but it's not eastern Tennessee or southwest Virginia, right? We're here for my wife's, <laughs> for her health reasons, but that that's another story. That that's She's better off in a warm climate. But right. because of um, my life experience, I think I could speak at, in, in some degree from, from both perspectives. My sympathies have always lied with southern white culture and ideals, and knowing 
that the so-called Yankee Empire really exists to serve the international Jewish monetary interests. Not all Yankees appreciate what has become of the North and and appreciate this that this um Yankee Empire perspective, if I have to use a phrase borrowed from some of the League of the South members. Right. Speaking from a general um Christian nationalist point of view, I said a couple of years ago that there's no single white nation or ethnicity. We should not merely celebrate and defend being white, but we should celebrate and defend each white nation distinctly. And it's not good for white people to break down the barriers even between perceptibly white nations and mold them all together into a single lump. No, I agree with you completely about that. I would not want Appalachia to become like Vermont. Or no, especially absolutely. New Jersey, right? Especially New Jersey. I, I wouldn't want the South to become like the North. We have to um, defend every white culture, and, and we have to defend Southern, white Southern culture. So That's on this, right, and I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, on this basis, the South has as much of a right to autonomy as any nation, because Southern identity and heritage is indeed distinct from the rest of America. And, and yes, we are a, we are a nation in the true sense of the term. Absolutely, but but being of the same general racial racial origin, white Christians from these different places, I don't think should despise one another either. On the other side of the coin, even the oh, ancestors. Oh no, no, no more. Uh, you know, as we like to say sometimes in short, and no more brothers' wars. Right. Even I was going to say, even the ancestors of the English who settled in Virginia had, in centuries before that, participated in the oppression of the ancestors of the Scots and Irish who helped settle the South. Oh so, yes, I've written I've written quite extensively about that. But yes, I, I agree with you. I think that's extremely important that we remember that there are uh, a number of distinct white nations. You know, we're all racial. Uh, kinsmen, and I think that's wonderful. But uh, we're different. We're different. Uh, we're different families in the same big family group. Right. And there's great, real God-given diversity there. I mean, you know, uh, I wouldn't want all Frenchmen to try to become like Germans, nor Germans to become like Frenchmen, because both offer something unique and something uh, that that you know we would we would suffer uh, if if it was lost. And the same about Southerners. You know, we, we are distinct people. But at the same time, we should view these other white nations as our cousins and, when necessary, in times of, of dire distress, as our allies and and help each other because I, I do think that the, the Jew uh, and the dark races of the world don't draw those fine distinctions between this group of white people and that group of white people like we do. Uh, they just see us all as white devils, you know, and that's the way they will treat us. So we have to band together, but we also want to keep that wonderful diversity, true diversity, that God has given us that separates a Frenchman from a German, from a Scot, from a Spaniard, from an Italian, from uh, a Pole, from a Russian, from a Southerner. So 
and and that's that that's exactly my feeling that that all white nations are basically under siege right now and yes. and even it, even I know that there's a lot of um hostility down south for Yankees and I don't blame them believe me I I sympathize with them 100% but most of the people up north were just as deceived as most young men today from north and south who go off and fight in in these Jewish wars of aggression these Zionist wars being fought in the Middle East uh, yes they, uh, that that has happened frequently um to young men throughout the ages, they have been, you know, taken off to, to fight for some purpose that that has no benefit to them in the long run or even the short run. So, you know, yeah, there there, there is still a good deal of animosity down here. It's almost like we look at our, uh, you know, fellow whites up north and say, why in the world? Did you try? Did, did your ancestors come down here and try to destroy us? Well, I agree. And pretty much, pretty much all the time, all that we really would like to have from uh, you know people in that part of the uh, of the world now is yes, you're right. The South was right about this, and and we're sorry that our ancestors did that. And after that, we shake hands and we come out and we say, okay, we've got another battle to fight right now against the the jew and and his minions uh that are going to destroy us all and draw no distinctions between us so i i, I don't push that yankee hate uh like a lot of people down south do i mean i realize the source of the animosity and i don't like what was done to my ancestors by lincoln's blue blue bellies as we call them but uh hey that was 150 years ago well, it's certainly. Uh, I don't. The, I don't. I don't hold a grudge. It's certainly about one of it with gr- people who are alive today. I'm sorry. It, it's certainly one of the great sins of our history. There is no doubt. Yes. There is no. A white man has no right to go into another white man's state or nation and and force him to do anything. And and it's certainly no Christian right. Even with the issue of slavery, it wasn't a right. Not at all. It was not righteous at all. No. <laughs> so my own life has been divided between north and south, but I could understand why, why Southerners are distrustful of Yankees, and I fully, I fully sympathize with that. But the League is open to the idea of participation in non-Southern states. So we see chapters not only in marginal states. I consider them marginal. I consider Virginia now a marginal state. Eastern Virginia is like a a, a suburb of New York. It seems like. Oh yes, absolutely. It's horrible. But but not only in marginal states such as Maryland, but also in California, Oklahoma, and even in the Pacific Northwest, you have League of the South chapters now. Yes, we've had League of the South chapters in some very unusual places, Pastor. We've we had uh, we we don't still have one now, but we had one in New York, not New York City, but in upstate New York, and still have a lot of members in New York. Uh, we had uh, you know we got a California chapter, we've had a Northwest uh, chapter that encompasses uh, you know the Pacific Northwest, including uh, Idaho and and Montana. Uh, New Mexico, Arizona, you know, we've got Southerners who have 
uh, been dispersed for various reasons to different places on this continent, and uh, we invite them to become league members, and we also, as I pointed out earlier, invite people who are not Southerners uh, but who are white allies and, and believe in, in the Southern cause, as we call it, uh, to be members as well because, uh, you know, we, we, we want all the support and allies that we can get among people who are sympathetic to what we want to do. Well, that's refreshing because my, my listeners, the, t- the top seven states visiting Christagenia now for three years running are California, Texas, Florida, Ohio, New York, North Carolina, and Tennessee. That's a pretty good mix between North and South, even if the South is um, is the greater number, actually. And I'm sure that all of them would have sympathy with the cause of the League of the South. I've seen, personally, Confederate flags flying in rural Pennsylvania and in upstate New York. And many whites in the North are just as disaffected from the American Empire as whites in the South. So I'm not, you, you really caught me off guard when you've told me that you had a, a, a um, chapter in New York, because my next question was, what was whether you ever envisioned a chapter in places such as New York or Ohio or Indiana? I know a lot of people in Ohio and Indiana that identify with the South. Oh yes, absolutely. We uh, we have a lot of members, particularly in the southern parts of those states, who are very sympathetic. And uh, we don't we don't have a an active Midwest chapter right now. But uh, back in the '90s and early 2000s, I made several trips up to Indiana and Illinois, um, Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, to meet with league groups up there. And he said you. You had seen Confederate flags in Pennsylvania. Man, I tell you what, I drove between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and I thought I was in Mississippi and Alabama. I saw so many Confederate battle flags. Uh, And this was mm, probably 10, 12 years ago, Uh, and I'm sure it's still the same way now. But, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people up there that sympathize with what we're doing because they realize that the only winner out of the war between the states was the establishment. And the establishment, of course, has turned into be uh, uh, the Jew, the international Jew. And he was lurking behind the scenes even then, but uh, he certainly came into his own by 1900 here. And uh, that's the legacy of this. And a lot of Northerners have have begun to realize that their so-called victory uh, over the South was a big defeat for all of us white folks. It's always been my opinion. I don't have the um, I don't have the documentation to prove it, but it's always been my opinion that the 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 war against the South, the war of Northern aggression, really began in 1936 or, or 1932. I forget actually the year it was that Andrew Jackson had 
revoked or refused to renew the Charter of the Central Central the cent, the Second Bank of the United States, the Second yes. Central Bank, that that's when the Rothschilds started agitating the North into a war against the South. That's my opinion. I think you're right. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. It was that period between 1832 and 36. I think the the actual campaign to uh, keep the Second Bank of the United States from being rechartered by Jackson began in 1832, and I think that it concluded by 36. Uh, but yes, I, I, I think the, the Rothschilds at that point uh, got involved heavily, and I think that uh, you're absolutely correct about them agitating in the North. And the um, the, the, the war of... That that war, the war, the war between the states, if you want to call it that, it doesn't really matter. It's not a civil war by any means. That that war was also, to me, it, it's a good study in how establishment propaganda can trump scripture because people don't read their Bibles, and and that's because there is no way that the Bible gives a man a moral grounds for even tearing this a slave out of the hands of another man. The Bible no, does not support not. that. Our, our southern ancestors understood that slavery was a God-ordained and regulated institution, and God does not ordain and regulate an institution if if it uh, if it's sinful to uh, engage uh, in that particular right. or, or to 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 you know be a part of that institution. I mean, it's not like that God said, okay, well, let's see, prostitution. Okay, I'm going to ordain and regulate prostitution. No, absolutely not. It's a sin. Slavery, on the other hand, was not. It was a uh, fact of life. Yeah, it it was a fact of life. And and our southern ancestors, uh, I think uh, particularly uh, one of my uh, Presbyterian heroes, Reverend Robert Louis Dabney, did a wonderful uh, exposition on, on the biblical uh, institution of slavery uh, after the war to justify the southern cause uh, and I think it was uh, the cause of Virginia and, and the rest of the south or something like that anyway it was a wonderful defense of slavery uh, defense of Virginia and the south I think was the name of it but I recommend it to anyone who wants to read about the uh, biblical nature of of slavery as understood by Southerners, and not just Southern uh, ministers, pastors, but uh, the Southern people in general were very scripturally oriented and, and scripturally knowledgeable back then, and they understood this. And I think that a lot of people in the North understood it too, but the abolitionists got the upper hand on things and started pushing uh, their idea of equality and uh, abolitionism and the abolishing of slavery, and uh, that kind of got mixed up with politics, and the rest is history, as they say. Well, well that's the same power of, of the establishment propaganda that we're up against today, and, and that's why I think it's a good lesson for us. Yes, indeed it is. Uh, you know, they lied about the nature of slavery then, and they, they lie today about the nature of equality and all the other uh, political shibboleths uh, that the left pushes on us. Uh, but in, anyone who, who uh, is a Christian and who, who has any uh, inclination to study God's Word seriously can look at all these 
things that are being pushed by the Jew, the international Jew and his minions on the left, and, and they can see right through them as the lies and and uh, and all that they are. And you can't build you can't build a society or a civilization on lies. Uh, God will only allow such foolishness foolishness and nonsense for so long before the whole edifice comes crashing down on everybody that supported it. So, um, you know, it's, it's it's not going to stand. That's one thing we know for sure. I thought I remembered reading um, one day last month, Hunter Wallace, who's actually a League of the South member, and he wrote an article about Robert E. Lee and slavery and how Robert E. Lee wanted thought that the war would enable Virginia to rid itself of the slaves and and that it would be a um, more economically viable state with with um with a wholly white population. I could be wrong. I may have misread that article. I'm not positive. Yeah, I, I think uh I think that I remember reading reading that particular article uh Hunter writes a lot of stuff. I try to read it all, but I, I occasionally miss some of it because I get busy with other things. But yeah, you know, I think a lot of Southerners, uh, Lee included, uh, were anxious to get rid of slavery because Lee, I know, had written uh, on several occasions that slavery was not a good thing for white people. He said, "Yeah, it's it's bad for the Negro, but it's also bad, right. even worse for white people." And and Lee said, "And white people too, I'm concerned about because they're my people." And obviously, the detriment of slavery in Lee's eyes was that it brought Negroes and white people in contact with one another, and that there was no good that could be had from that. And even some of the American founders. Um weren't very favorable from the South, like Thomas Jefferson, weren't very favorable to slavery, but never sought to deprive another man of his property rights. They understood that that was a sin. Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, Jefferson uh, made that famous uh, comment about slavery that, you know, we've got a wolf by the ears and we dare not let go because, you know, you do have the, the Christian uh, concern here of property rights and it was certainly uh, certainly that but you also had the the question of, of bringing a a foreign element uh, into your uh, in in into your society and the problems with uh, genetic mixing uh, of the gene pool which usually occurs when that happens and Jefferson was very much aware of that as were a lot of the founders uh, and it was a problem, a perennial problem for them. And I think they did really understand that they had a wolf by the ears and they dare not let go. But to hold on uh, was not much of a solution either. So it, it was really a devil's bargain, well, bringing the Negro to the New World anyway. They were Those men were correct because the North is destroyed. I mean, oh, all yeah. of all of the cities of the north and and the central Atlantic coast are destroyed because of the freeing well, and the of southern the Negro. cities are becoming destroyed now. Yes, unfortunately, they are. Atlanta's like a hellhole. I, I, I mean, I know it's sad, but I like to joke that Sherman burnt Atlanta, and it's still black. It, it's horribly black. It, it's um, that's right. Yeah, our, our old our joke is where is Sherman when you need him? <laughs> yeah, that works too. <laughs> That works too. I, I, we, when we travel north, we go through Birmingham, 
and avoid Atlanta at all costs. Well, Birmingham's not much better. I mean, the traffic is not as bad, but man, Birmingham is a is a hellhole of crime. You know, to me, it seems like a moderate place, and I've been through Birmingham and Chattanooga, and I know that they're both bad on on a on, on a southern scale with crime. But I grew up in New Jersey, what where um the Negroes, the the supposedly Christian Negroes moved up in large numbers in the fifties and sixties, and by the seventies it was destroyed. And and I I mean they 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 reaped what they sowed. I fully agree. The North did reap what it sowed, and and yes, that's exactly right. I I don't know if most of the white folk in the rural north even understand that because I have kin in the mountains in upstate New York that don't understand mm-hmm. it, not at all. Right. League of the South members have actually lost their jobs for their membership in the league. I, I, I just today I read about the case of Josh Dogrell, that the yeah. Anniston, Alabama police officer who was fired simply because of his membership in a league. And and I, I I mean that's people in Christian identity are accustomed to to the fear of being fired for their religious beliefs. Has Josh succeeded in his case at all? I I couldn't find a follow up. No, uh, I I don't know what the timetable is. I do know that he had has has a lawyer. Uh, or had a lawyer. Um, I know that there was a hearing. I actually testified at the hearing, and that's when the city city uh, government basically said, "You're you're out of here." And uh, I don't know where the case, as it were, stands right now. Um, I haven't had much contact with Josh over the last few months. He's he's working. Uh, obviously, he can't find a position in law enforcement after this happened, and that was what he was really interested in doing uh, as his career, and he was very good at it, um, but he's, he's working and supporting his family and, and all, and I, I really don't know what his uh, legal plans are to really fight this, uh, but it, it was a, a, a tremendous farce, uh, a mockery of, of, of the law. Um, what happened because uh, you know he actually told his police chief uh, back all oh, about 2009-2010 that he was a member of the league and uh, the police chief said well that's no big deal you know uh, they checked it out and Josh told him he was going to speak he's, he's one of my former students at the University of Alabama very smart young man very well spoken I asked him to speak at one of our national conferences, and he agreed. He cleared it with his police chief. The police chief said, "Hey, no big deal. You got a private life. Do what you want to." There's not. I see no problem with this. So he did it, and there was no uh, blowback from it until a couple of years ago. The Southern Poverty Law Center, that nest of Jew vipers in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, uh, brought brought it back up. Uh, you know, start, started fanning the flames right about the time that uh, Dylan Roof uh, killed those Negroes in that church in Charleston back in 2015. And it just so happened that that's when the Southern Poverty Law Center brought 
this up again about Josh having spoken at the league meeting three or four years prior to this. It wasn't like it was something new. And the city just uh, fell apart. They just stumbled all over themselves to fire him just to show how non-racist they were. So it was a bad, bad timing uh, for one thing, but just the, the craven cowardliness of the city officials over there. Uh, I mean, I saw it firsthand. I went over there and testified in the hearing, and uh, they had all kind of stuff that I'd written on Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, saying nigger this and nigger that, and, you know, <laughs> they asked me if I said that, and I said, yeah, what else you want to know? <laughs> right. Uh, I had a great time. I had a great time testifying, laughing at the at the lawyers for the city. They couldn't believe that that all that stuff didn't make me, you know, crouch and go back and lie down in the fetal position in the corner and beg for forgiveness. But uh, Josh didn't win, and uh, I don't think he will win in this case. I, I think the deck stacked against him. But he's a courageous young man, uh, that's for sure. But he's not the only one who's lost his job because of his league membership. No, and has this often been the case? I mean, I'm sure you've had others. I, I don't, you don't well, need to it, name it, them it or go into cases. Well, it has but it's, it's happened quite often. Right. Uh, a lot of our people have lost their jobs. Uh, but in a lot of cases, uh, thank God, uh, they've gone on to something better. I know that uh, one of our uh, board members, uh, when he was younger, back in the 90s, was working for a, a engineering firm in Louisiana, and they found out, you know, what he believed and, and all, and uh, they they fired him because he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't recant, as it were. Uh, but he went on and founded his own engineering firm and is doing tremendously well today. So it doesn't always turn out badly. Well, there's no profit in compromise, but I do believe that sometimes God awards us for choosing Him rather than the world. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And civic nationalism. Civic nationalism is based on compromise and acceptance of the Jewish equality paradigm. It's a failure. The League seems to be distancing itself from civic nationalists. We don't like civic nationalism. In fact, it's an oxymoron. Of course. Uh, there can be no real nationalism in of the civic variety because the civic variety is is based on uh, really something that Lincoln said in his uh, Gettysburg address about a proposition nation you can't uh, you can't base a nation as it were on a proposition a nation is and the proposition was that all men are created equal of course. Uh, Southerners have always understood that a nation is a people, a blood, a bloodline. Uh, and to be a civic nationalist is to say that, oh, anybody can come and be an American, a Southerner, whatever, as long as you subscribe to certain, uh, you know, certain beliefs, certain uh, caveats, uh, certain propositions. Uh, it doesn't matter if, if you come from China or you come from India or you come from deep, dark, darkest Africa or wherever. You can become an American or a Southerner or whatever if you just subscribe to these propositions. Uh, that's civic nationalism, and it does not work. 
and and you've once again um anticipated where I was going next. I was going to ask you about that exact idea of the proposition nation that the um i I read your article this afternoon actually um titled Kith and Kin or a proposition nation. I thought it was excellent and and Thank it you. it pins that 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 issue down. And if anything, it should make people think about what a nation is. The the Latin word natus means birth. If you're not That's right. born into a nation, you can't be part of that nation. And you can't be born into a nation by simply being born in its geography. <laughs> that doesn't... <laughs> that's all no, Jewish... No, absolutely not. We have an old saying down south that just because a kitten has... has uh, a cat has kittens in an oven doesn't make them biscuits. Right. That's good. So, you know, it doesn't make any difference where you happen to be born. Uh, if your uh, genetic line is from India or China or Africa, uh, you know, you are not one of the progeny uh, of the founding fathers. And they said, you know, you can go back and read the founding document. I mean, I'm not a constitutionalist, uh by any means, um, because that, that's part of the proposition, I think. But if you do go back and read it, it, it says very clearly uh, that, you know, this uh, uh, experiment, uh, America, as it were, uh, is for ourselves and our posterity. Right. It's not for anybody who can come here. You know, anybody who can find a, a boat and, and come here and uh, establish themselves and have children. It's not for them. It's for white men and women. Uh, and that's the difference between our nationalism, the true nationalism, what we call blood and soil nationalism, and civic nationalism. And civic nationalism didn't really come into picture until later, I believe, because the with all of its faults, and, and I'm no fan of the Constitution, but it is for us and our posterity, and the us were all white Gentiles, if, if you look That's at the right. signers. And it was never supposed to... The Constitution was never supposed to form a nation. It was only an agreement between 13 states that were already nations in their own right and and that's yeah they were nation states yeah we we forgot all that by 1860 our, our yes, people forgot it all or at least the people in the north forgot it all <laughs> for the most part as soon as they joined the war that they demonstrate their forgetfulness of the true ideals of, of the century before them for the record that's right and uh yeah, it, it's sh it's a shame that that happened, but uh, you know I, I always look at these things and and say, well, you know, uh, God has a plan. Yes, sir, He does. The plan is that we can't rule ourselves, we can't govern ourselves. Um, there is no such thing as self-government. We can only coexist and coexist peacefully under God's government. Amen. For the Amen. record, and, and if you don't mind to speak about it, because I'm compelled to, because a lot of my listeners are, are SCV, Sons of Confederate Veterans members. And, and I've heard that the Sons of Confederate Veterans go so far as to prohibit their members from joining the League of the South. And if that's true, why do they hate your organization? 
Well, I, I don't think that that's an official policy. If it is, I'm not aware of it. Uh, we've had a lot of SCV members, uh, particularly rank and file members, good folks, uh, join the league over the last, you know, 23 years, uh, and. You know, obviously, they're they're a different organization from ours. And to be honest about it, we have had some problems with their leadership before. Uh, and I have heard of particular leaders uh, talking bad about the league and encouraging people not to join. But I don't think it's been an official policy. Uh, and we have, at, in times past, worked together uh, officially with uh, the SCV on a few few events uh, so it's kind of a mixed bag really pastor uh, a lot of good rank and file folks and I've known quite a few good officers uh, in in the SCV but um, you know they kind of go their way as an official organization and we go ours uh, they are not a southern nationalist organization uh, they are sort of a historical genealogical sort of backward-looking uh, historical organization um, and we are a present and future oriented Southern nationalist organization. So, but there's, there's, there's no reason that we should be at each other's throats. And we try to kind of live and let live with them. And we encourage them to do the same. And, um, we've had some very good members over the years that have, uh, come out of the SCV into the league and have become very good league members. Okay. Perhaps that's only peculiar to the chapter or the state where I heard the information, which I won't reveal because it'll reveal the person who gave it to me, but but perhaps it's only peculiar to that one place, and and that's a possibility, Well, I, I think it is. I think that is the problem. I think it just depends on the personalities involved, and, you know, when the personalities involved uh, uh, change, then that particular geographical area no longer is a, a sore point with the SCV for us. So okay. I think it really has to do with uh, the personalities involved. And some, some yeah, it's true. Some people in the SCV have never liked the league. They think we're too radical, and uh, they don't like us uh, reminding them that part of the charge uh, that Stephen Dill Lee, who founded the organization, gave them was to uh, to continue the calls into the future. And that's what we, that's what we try to do. Right, the cause for, for liberty and freedom from tyranny should never die. That should never die. That's we right. can't just because of a, a um a, a treaty a, a cessation of fire and of, of of bullets was agreed to and a treaty was signed doesn't mean that the cause should die. That's right. That's and, an incredible and, uh, disconnect. Yeah, I I mean you know, obviously, as, as President Jefferson Davis said, that this this uh, this cause of the South, uh, you know, would be reborn or resurrected again in another time and another place, probably in a different form. Uh, we take that seriously. You know, it's uh, there's some unfinished, unsettled business as far as we're concerned, and that has to do with our ability to, uh, as Southerners, to live in and dominate. Uh, these lands that God has given us for our people, and we're going to to do that come hell or high water, of course, with with His mercy and, and His grace uh, uh, and His strong, mighty arm behind us. We can't do it on our own, but we're certainly going to not uh, 
you know, sneeze at the blessing that he has given us and, and as, as masters over this wonderful domain uh, down here uh, in, in Dixie. So we take this charge very seriously to continue this cause. You mentioned Jefferson Davis. I just visited Beauvoir with Melissa two weeks ago. Beautiful his, place. His retirement home. Retirement home in Biloxi. Yep. Yes, right. it, it is beautiful. I, I got to see the um, the library that was only under construction when I visited in 2012. It's completed and open now. The library has mm-hmm. an, a lot of excellent um, resources in it. But on the other hand, it had a lot of um, propaganda about the war in it as well. So it's a 50-50 proposition that's probably to be expected today. Yeah, today I think that is to be expected. I know um, at least a few disaffected members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans because of their inactivity. Um, concerning the defense of the Southern Monuments, what statement would you make to members of the SCV who are disaffected by such an action? Three words, Pastor. Join the League. We'll give them something to do. We'll give them some activity. Uh, you, you've seen what we do in, in person there in New Orleans, and God willing, we're going to be up in Charlottesville, Virginia, on August the 12th, doing the same thing in much, much larger numbers, arrayed against much larger numbers of enemies as well. So well. it could be very interesting. But, yeah, these uh, SCV members out there who who long for a little more activity and uh, a little more action, uh, you can find it in the league. I'll guarantee you that. I wish I could make it to Charlotte. It doesn't look like I'll be able to. And that's besides the point. I, I would, um, for my listeners, it, if you want to engage in anything political or anything that's civic-minded, I would definitely recommend that you join a league. Well, thank the, you, sir. The League of the I South. I appreciate that. I really appreciate that endorsement. Your website, you you have several of them. The the, um, the active one is leagueofthesouth.com. Ah uh, yes, that <clears throat> that is uh, soon to be. I think our only one, uh, leagueofthesouth.com. We have an older site that is dixienet.org, but uh, we're phasing it out. It's serving right now as only an archival site. We have a lot of old, old articles over there. Some of them are good, and some of them, uh, eh, some of them not so good. Uh, we did use it for a while for selling merchandise, but we're transferring that over to the new website as well. But uh, yeah, uh, leagueofthesouth.com. That'll get you right up, up to date on what's going on with the league. And we have a presence on uh, on Facebook and Twitter and on the Russian social media site called VK, which I highly recommend to everybody because it's not run by Jews and it's not censored uh, like the uh, a Jewish Facebook site, for example, is. So, I have an account there. I just haven't had a chance to go spend any time with it yet. Well, we, we, have, uh, we have a good social media presence, and that's where you reach young people today. 
Wonderful. Dr. Michael Hill, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Sir, it's been a pleasure and an honor for me to be on your show. Uh, I enjoy your website. Uh, I enjoy all of the Bible study and all that I, 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 I do uh, listening to to your good advice. And uh, you've helped me quite a bit to straighten some questions out in my own mind. And uh, I thank you, sir, for that. Well, thank you. That's humbling. Thank you for being here. Praise Christ. Yes, sir. And good night. Good night.